Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Who watches The Watchmen? It's one of the oldest questions in the book. And every time we hear about a new police officer on the take, or a new prosecutor who mishandles evidence, the question looms ever larger in our minds. Little wonder, then, that this question grew to consume not just a city, but nearly the entire state of Pennsylvania in the 1980s, when one of its most infamous judges was found to have gone bad. Even now, the name Joe Okiki brings many a knowing chuckle or a sad shake of the head to residents of the Commonwealth, and yet... Joe Okiki's story is not simply a story of one bad apple. It's a story of unparalleled ambition and paranoia, whose twists and turns read like this summer's hottest legal thriller, one with a surprise ending to boot. Here to tell that story is Bruce Seavey, author of Jailing the Johnstown Judge, Joe Okiki, the Mob and Corrupt Justice, just published by the History Press. In our new series on new releases, we are thrilled to have Bruce join us to help us understand the rise and fall of one of Pennsylvania's great legal minds. Bruce, welcome to Crime Capsule. We are so happy to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, Based on your professional biography, Bruce, you are the kind of guy that my brother used to say uh, has ink in his veins. Uh, all the way from the very beginning, you were in the newsrooms digging out the stories and, and sniffing out uh, the facts. So tell us about yourself. How did, how did you get started? Yeah, that's pretty funny because that's sort of where um, really coming in to research this book started. Uh, if you go back to whenever I was a kid, uh, my grandparents lived by Joe Okiki's property, one of his properties, um, who I ended up writing the book about. And so as a child, you know, you, we'd explore the woods. We'd, we found the property. We wondered who owned it. And they said, Judge Okiki. Um, my grandparents, my uncles, and we said, who's Joe Okiki? And they said, well, look at the front page of the newspaper. And so that's what I did. And so as a kid, <laughs> I started following the case. Um, and it's probably the reason why I got into journalism and then you know, led me to write this book eventually. You have been carrying this for decades, is what you're saying. <laughs> it's what got me started in, in the uh, journalism uh, field, you know, as a kid, just wanting to read about, research, and, and learn more, and then tell the story. Well, let me ask you, uh, jumping ahead almost to the end, right here at the beginning, what stage of the investigation and or trial uh, was currently in the newspaper when your grandfather told you, hey, take a look at A1 above the fold. Wow, that was, I was probably only, I couldn't have been older than seven years old. So it would have been around the time that he was charged or convicted. I mean, that it, it gets muddy at that point. But I just remember seeing front page above the fold of the local Johnstown Tribune Democrat almost on a daily basis. There was a new story about whether he was, you know, 
battling his his charges and then when he fled the country which you know of course we'll get into uh so many different chapters to this saga and i couldn't tell you exactly where it began i just know that when we asked relatives you know well who's this judge okiki it was just they just kind of laughed and said you know well he's a crook and and that was what what i knew it does make you wonder i mean if you could kind of turn the turn the clock back or you know get that kind of window onto um, on to past years. I mean, what must it have been like in that newsroom, right? In those months in 88, 89, when it was all blowing up, does it, do you sort of get a sense of, um, you know, kind of, uh, vicarious nostalgia, uh, you know, or excitement for your, your colleagues back then? Yeah. There's a few that I've talked to who were in and around the courthouse at that time. And without giving any names or identities away, because these some of these individuals um, don't really want to go there, it was tense. It was extremely nerve-wracking because um, the politics that were going on, the criminal charges, you know, you didn't know who was being wiretapped or was wearing a wire. I, I mean, extreme kind of circumstances at the time. And people who did cover it um, and were in the courthouse for various reasons at that time, will tell you that um, it was a pretty intense period in, in uh, Cambria County. I, I can believe it. And you don't know what's going to come out day by day, do you? I mean, the kind of revelations are, they're stacked a mile deep, aren't they? Yes, there there were quite a few charges against this particular judge and um, a lot of other things going on under, under the radar behind the scenes at that time. And so, yeah, I, I think that there was a vein of paranoia. And um, I don't even know if you call it paranoia when you, you really are being wiretapped by the state police, but that's what was happening at the time. Well, we'll get into it. Uh, before we before we get that far, though, let's, um, let's take a second and just look at this part of the Commonwealth uh, to begin with. Now, have you covered this beat your entire career, this particular sort of postage stamp, as they say, of your native soil in, in William Faulkner's terms? For the most part, yes. I uh, grew up in Johnstown area of Cambria County, and then after college started um, in the newspaper business in Somerset County, which is an adjacent county, just, just south of there. So for the first you know, five, six, seven years of my career, I was in Somerset County, very close by, and then I uh, got on with a weekly paper, a sister publication that covered the Johnstown community again. And so for you know basically since that time i've been covering cambria county until recently uh, where i took a role covering harrisburg in state politics and what would you say just in a nutshell are some of the major concerns the major beats in this area of course as you write in your book one of the dominant forces in this part of pennsylvania you know was heavy industry and steel and the mills and so forth for years and years but what else what else consumes the attention of the locals i, I think renewal and the next step um progress i mean when you look at communities similar to johnstown if you go for instance about an hour and a half to our west is pittsburgh and that is a major city that's reinvented itself through education and healthcare, and they've sort of found their next chapter um you know, Pittsburgh's doing pretty well by many accounts. And Johnstown has felt like a small Pittsburgh to a lot of people here that hasn't found its next chapter yet. Um, you know, there's been disinvestment, there's been uh, urban decay, and there's been population loss. And so um, a lot of what Johnstown, Cambria County residents grapple with and deal with is how do I make this community a place where my children want to stay and rebuild and, and, continue to linger. Um, 
And that's really been the big question. Um, and I think something that, you know, local leaders and, and people across the area have struggled with because the population loss has been real. And when politicians, you know, whether on the, the national or state level, do their campaigning, and in fact, our new governor here in Pennsylvania launched his campaign in Johnstown, you know, just to, I think, prove a point about we're not letting these communities be forgotten. We're not letting these towns and cities, you know, be reclaimed by nature. We want to to show that you know we have a vested interest in these former Rust Belt areas, and so I think Johnstown has become sort of uh, an emblem of that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a a key part of that narrative of renewal, as you describe, has to be public trust, the integrity of public trust, which your book explores in every dimension imaginable. And it's one of those things. It's like you can't really see the fabric until it's torn. Can you? I think that's a really good point. I think that when Judge Joe Kiki was charged in the late 80s, um, it sort of opened Pandora's box. And I think a lot of things that weren't talked about were kept under the rug um, now started to come to light. And I think my book kind of gets into the particulars of that and maybe even some things that were, were still under wraps. So you have told us about the deep origin of your interest in the case. Uh, it's not often that we have our, our authors, our guests mention, you know, I've been following this since I was a seven-year-old. <laughs> so that's, that's, pretty, uh, that's pretty exciting for us. Thank you for sharing that. The, the book is a, it is a ripping good yarn. I mean, it reads kind of like a page turner because you just have no idea what is going to happen next. And you only know that it's going to get worse and worse and worse as you go deeper into the story. But I do want to ask, I mean, it is composed of an exceptional amount of dedicated reporting and sort of intricate sleuthing as you as you had to piece together these sources, and many of which came from sealed files and so forth. Uh, when and where did you first start really compiling the material and having it take shape into book form, even even though you had sort of carried the case in, in mind for years and years? Yeah, I mean, full dis disclosure on that, as a child, I followed it and read it in the paper. And then there was a gap of many years in between where, you know, at that point after he had, he had passed, um, there wasn't a whole lot of talk or there wasn't a whole lot that I was doing personally with it. And so it really picked up again, I believe in 2000 and I want to say it was around 2018. I had gotten to a point where um, I had more freedom in my work to, to look at longer form projects. And this case I mentioned to a coworker and he had never heard of it. And he had grown up in Cambria County and was only maybe two or three years younger than I am. And so it was fascinating to me that, you know, I, it was in the back of my memory and yet he had never heard of it. And so he and I started talking and then it went from there really. Uh, it became something that um, I started pulling out the archives and researching. And at a certain point at the Heritage Association, I mentioned something to the executive director about this particular case and whether they had a lot of materials on it. And what he had said to me was that the, the judge's widow was in there all the time researching things and looking at things of her own. And he kind of laughed and said, you know, she is still convinced that he had the raw deal and was set up. And, and you know, I said, would she talk to me? And he said, I can give you her email and you can try. And, and that dialogue is really where this began in earnest because she was able to share so many things in terms of 
letters that he had written, um, you know, uh, notes on yellowing notepads. I mean, just all this crazy source material that she was willing to share to try to get his side of the story out there. And that's really where it grew legs. And you reproduce some of that material in the book, especially the sort of images of the handwritten notes and legal pads and so forth. It's fascinating to see it firsthand. She kept virtually everything. In fact, she said when they fled the country, which again, we're, we're putting the end of the story first, but you know, they had, I think, an entire storage shed full of records and documents and things because he was still hoping to sue people and counter sue. And, and, you know, he had just kept everything. He was a pack rat with this stuff. And so he had a lot of this material um, and his widow has kept much of that and was willing to share a lot of that with me in the interest of, you know, getting their side of things out there, out there in the public domain. Researchers, dream come true. Just give us all the primary sources and, you know, leave us alone for six years, right? Um, <laughs> right. So it's interesting because Judge Joe Okiki, you know, his early years were, they were almost this kind of cliched American rags to riches, not riches, but sort of the self-made hard work uh, American story, you know, sort of childhood defined by poverty he worked really hard in school you know sort of put his put his academics first and and excelled and ended up getting these degrees and kind of you know his he was at one point as a teenager the sole breadwinner for the household and these sort of all these elements that you get in americana but it, you know in sort of legends and lore right and in you know i don't know hardy boys kind of mysteries but in this particular case it was it was true it was actually all all true i mean what what was it like kind of discovering that aspect of his life and piecing that together yeah that was um really interesting to to kind of piece together as you said more of a traditional immigrant story you know his parents were like many um who came to this portion of pennsylvania um, looking for opportunities and finding it in the steel mill. Um, it, it was very difficult. It sounds like a, a very difficult upbringing in the sense of not maybe having a ton of um, connections, not having a ton of resources. And as you mentioned, he was at one point, apparently the sole breadwinner when his uh, father was ill and his mother was ill. And so he had to overcome quite a bit to get to where he was, um, certainly didn't come from, you know, uh, high upper class, certainly didn't come from an educated background, but was somebody who apparently had um, a very keen sense of things, you know, was was an avid reader, was somebody who was able to pick up and learn quickly. And so he sort of had a chip on his shoulder. I think that was something that was very evident, not just from what he, the way in which he talked about himself, but the way in which others who knew him talked about him. They talked about him being almost combative, you know, even with even without um, any pretext, just sort of combative. He, he certainly felt as though because of his background and uh, his parents being immigrants, um, he, he was outside of the existing power structure and felt that he needed to prove himself. He had a foray into politics in sort of the 50s and 60s. Didn't really take off. I mean, he made a couple of bids and a couple of runs and so forth after getting his legal uh, training and and so forth. But uh, that was more of kind of a precursor to the position that he would end up in in 1971. So uh, tell us just about that moment when he actually 
uh, what is the verb exactly? He takes up the bench. Does he sit down on the bench? What does he sort of carry his bench? You know, does he join the bench? <laughs> I, I, I guess you would say he joined the bench. Yes, he he ran for office um, prior to running for judge. He had ran for Congress actually, and um, he had lost to a guy who um, he he ran as a Democrat. He lost to a Republican for that seat. And as you mentioned, I think it was more of maybe a stepping stone. You know how it goes. If you run for an office, even that you maybe can't win, you're getting your name on the ballot. You get name recognition. And then he was able to win um, a, a position on the Cambry County Court of Common Pleas in um, around 1970. And so that was sort of where his political career began after he had gone to law school. So before the trouble begins, and we'll get to the trouble very quickly here, what kinds of cases were commonly brought to this particular court, and what kinds of cases, uh, based on your research, was Judge Okiki hearing? There were a variety of things. Um, obviously, he was in charge of the orphans court, so he dealt with all those sorts of issues. Um, he was also Someone who at various times would have to rule on on problems that resulted from the 1977 Johnstown flood, which resulted in, in the loss of dozens of lives and property. Um, there was also a, and there's there's a few portions of the book that get into this as well. There was a pretty well-known trial in the early 1980s in which um, a handful of police officers had entered a bar that was frequented by members of the Outlaws biker gang. And the long and short of it is that a brawl turned into a shootout and um, there were, no one was killed, but Okiki was the judge tasked with um, those charges against the outlaw biker gang members who were involved in this. And there was sort of some back and forth in there about whether or not the officers were there undercover, as they had said, or whether they were there and um, just causing problems, having a night out and and that was the the sort of start of this whole brawl. But that was probably one of the more uh, well-known cases that he presided over and, in fact, um, took a lot of precautions about it. He told a lot of people at various times that, you know, he did fear for his life, that these were some dangerous individuals, and that um, he was he was very nervous about that case and any kind of fallout or repercussion that would have came from presiding over a, a trial like that. You know, it's interesting because when – when the court itself is called common pleas, it makes you think just kind of on, on first blush that, um, you know, it's kind of like a small claims court, you know, just kind of like a low level stuff, but it, but it actually sounds like he was handling some fairly complex cases and, and suits here. Yeah, it was, it's a County level court in Pennsylvania. And so, um, it was right above the magistrate level, uh, when things would progress to that, to that area. And so, um, yeah, he was, um, he was the judge, a judge there for about 18 years and then was sworn in as president judge in 1988, which is when, as you mentioned, the, you know, his legal troubles um, came to light. So he came onto the bench in 1971 and it just wasn't long. We don't have an exact time frame, but you write that it just wasn't long before the kind of the, the gossip train got going. Um, based on your research, when did you really begin to see either a demonstrable uptick in 
what is the right word here? <laughs> you know, uh, mishandling of nearly everything that's going on, you know, under his care, <laughs> or you know, just like a little rent in the garment, just like a little rent in the fabric, where you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm, that doesn't look right. So when what what kind of timestamp would you put on this in his career? Well, that's a really good question. Um, there were so many charges um, that ended up being passed down through this presentment. Um, it's it, it would take some time for me to go back and dissect in, into which ones started when, because I know that the prosecutors, when they did this, you know, they went back several years for some of these. And so it sounded like a lot of these accusations dated back to the late 1970s, you know, so a good decade um, before he was actually formally charged with anything. So we'll get to the formal charges in a minute, but just just offhand, I mean, what kinds of things was he being accused of? So one of the things that was remarkable to me was at one point, a tip staff told state police that he had been tasked with going to the owners of a strip mining company and asking them for a commitment of, I believe, 10% of their their profits in exchange for a uh, favorable zoning ruling to enable them to strip mine. So that would be, I think, one of the one of the examples that I would use when people ask me, well, what was he accused of? Now, I don't believe he was ultimately convicted of that particular charge, but it, that's the kind of thing that came up in the presentment was that he would ask for certain financial considerations in exchange for rulings. The one that he was convicted of in that vein was a an attorney at one point um, looking for a settlement and after Okiki had ruled in his favor for the settlement, made a comment to him, something along the lines of, don't you think I should be given a commission on this? And Okiki's attorneys would argue, well, he was joking. He was friends with this person. It was a joke. This person told the courts no, that uh, Okiki was famous for shaking people down for whatever he could get. And it was usually in the vein of, you know, an offhand comment, but people didn't take it. People didn't take it as a joke, maybe the way that, that he presented it. So a lot of that going on at the time, and, and that was part of what landed him in some of the hot water he ended up in. Yeah, you know, the it's so polite, isn't it? The term, a little commitment, a little a little consideration. I'm reminded of the term in uh, modern standard Arabic, which is bakshish, right? A bakshish. It is a bribe, but really it's a consideration. It's for your trouble, you know, like here's just a little something for your trouble. And, you know, how how polite uh, is that? You know, it's interesting because these um, considerations that you document in the book, many of them, this is kind of classic cloak and dagger kind of stuff, but many of them seem to be handed around in thick wads of cash in unmarked envelopes that themselves don't necessarily always make it to their destinations. And there there seems to be a few instances where he's he's maybe waiting on his consideration and it doesn't arrive and then he gets mad because it's possibly been intercepted or, you know, it never the bag man never made it, made his way, you know, back to the assigned location. There's sort of this interesting, you know, like digging into the the shadows, you know, aspect and you see the trail, you see the actual paper trail and where it stops. Yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, I believe one of the other charges he was convicted of was um, accepting like $500 from a tip staff employee that the employee had given him with the understanding that Okiki was going to give it to the county commissioners who were in exchange going to give him a better job or promotion within the county. And so, as you mentioned, the the 
unmarked envelopes full of bills being passed around for certain favors. That was um, a portion of what was, you know, apparently going on at the time. Now, there's a there's a side kind of uh, element to this, which we have to consider, and it runs like another thread through your book, which is that sense of allegiance, right? And you get the sense of Okiki is running an operation, and he has people on his staff within this courthouse who some know about it, some don't, but he's always managing people's loyalties, right? And those who are not loyal to him, I mean, they're not found you know, in the bottom of the Susquehanna River, you know, wearing concrete shoes, but they don't flourish in his employ, do they? No, they don't. And in fact, that was, you know, as you mentioned, it being a theme or undercurrent in the book. I think that that's because really it was a theme or undercurrent to the political culture in perhaps not just Cambria County, but to some extent, the Commonwealth. Um, if you look at John Torquato, um, John Torquato was a operative within the Democratic Party who ended up being uh, convicted at a certain point of essentially arranging for jobs based on uh, political financial contributions. That was sort of his role in the party was to make sure that the contributions were made and in exchange you could get consideration for promotions within PennDOT or you know one of these other state agencies. And so that really was, I think, to a certain degree part of the ingrained culture of the area and something that Okiki would have been keen to aware of and, and perhaps part of at one point. You know, he writes in his own hand, you have transcriptions of uh, various pieces of memoir and uh, stationery and, and so forth. I mean, even Okiki is apt to say on regular intervals that no one is above the law, right? I mean, he just sort of says that routinely almost. And yet, you know, here he is putting himself in all sorts of uh, privileged positions and trying to insulate himself, you know, from oversight and from investigation and so forth. How do you, how do you read that? I mean, how is he, is he sort of using that phrase or that concept as a shield to deflect incoming arrows or is it just pure delusion at this point? I think to a certain extent, part of what may have been going through his mind was the idea here that He'd been driving on this road, on this highway, 65 mile per hour speed limit, going 90 to 100 with maybe a handful of other people and routinely passing the marked vehicles and never getting a ticket. And all of a sudden he finds himself in a position where he's been pulled over and is getting the ticket. And instead of, to some extent, he argued his innocence, but more than that, to a certain degree, if you even look at some of the arguments that were made in court by his attorneys, it was in some cases less about this guy is innocent and almost to a certain degree about this is what's happening here. These are, this is how business is done here. Here are other people who were involved in things. And so I think there was a, a, a weird sense of outrage um, in the sense that he felt he was singled out in, in all of this. And there were other things going on at the time. There were other people doing other things at the time that he felt were getting away with it. So I think when he says, as you mentioned, no one is above the law. It was maybe about him trying to deflect from what he had he had done or not done at that time, trying to say that, hey, there are others doing this, and um, I'm be I'm the one who's being singled out. I think at one point he says, 
that someone has pushed the state police button and, and targeted me. And so he was he was the victim of this conspiracy, that he was part of this machine for a long time, and he was the only one getting in trouble only because he had made the wrong enemies. That is a truly special phrase, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be carrying that one with me for a while. That that <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> um, oh wow! Pushed the state police button. Well, one of the uh, thankfully one of the features of our system, uh, judicial system here in this country, is that there are layers and levels, and there are courts which are higher than the one the corrupt judge may happen to sit on, right? And you detail in your book that there comes a point as these allegations are flying around and more and more people are kind of whistleblowing and there's a sense of people getting fed up with this over the course of the middle 1980s, okay? Things, the empire can't last, right? And he's made enough enemies and has alienated enough former employees and so forth, people are starting to seek recourse. And at some point, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court gets involved. Uh, so what's ha what brings things to that moment? Well, the irony with the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court in this case is that and, and maybe maybe the idea here was to provide yet another shield. Uh, for himself, but Okiki is the one who asked the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court to come in and do an evaluation of the county court system. And that gives Okiki sort of a, the, what they did was when he was sworn in as president judge, the, the Pennsylvania State Police or State Supreme Court did an evaluation of the county court system outlining the backlog that existed there in, in terms of there were civil cases related to the Johnstown flood where victims' families were seeking recourse. There was also there were also some um, asbestos-related cases that were backlogged there. And Okiki asked the state Supreme Court to come in and say, um, do this evaluation. And they actually hand him the report on the day he's sworn in as president judge. And he's sitting there. And mind you, in context of everything happening at that time, Okiki knows he's under state police investigation, but he has this report and he's sort of pounding the pounding the table up there in front of, you know, the audience, you know, saying he's been tasked with cleaning up the court system and that's exactly what he's going to do. And so you you know, you don't know how disingenuous or or not disingenuous he was about all of that, but that was a very to me having seen the VHS tape of that swearing-in ceremony, a really really tense moment in, in county history because here you have the sitting president judge under state police investigation holding a report from the state Supreme Court and using this as a impetus to say, I'm the guy who can fix this. I'm the guy who can clean this up. And it didn't work out for him. But the tension in that moment, I think, is remarkable. You know, sharp-eared listeners will, of course, uh, recall that same language appearing in a certain inaugural speech of about six or seven years ago. And it's interesting that regardless of a person's individual pro political persuasion, um, we have listeners from, of course, all across the spectrum. When one person claims to be the sole authority, right, or to have all the instruments and all the power, I think there's something in the American mind which naturally recoils against that and says, you know, that's just not how we have designed things 
to be, right? There have to be layers and oversights and checks and balances and so forth. So I can only imagine as you're watching this particular VHS, you know, you're, it, it sounds to me like what he's doing is he's trying to make enough noise over here with his left hand and distract the audience, you know, with all of the commotion and all of the, the spectacle over here that nobody's going to see what his right hand is actually doing. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really good point. And I think also, too, that because of that, the memory that a lot of people have still about him, in, in, in addition to, of course, the charges themselves, was that ceremony. Um, people felt it was very over the top. I mean, he had basically um, almost ordered the entire Bar Association to be there. There were, um, he had the band from his high school on the, on the balcony playing, um, playing God, God bless America or something like that. And when you ask people about judge O'Kiki, a lot of people will still say that, yeah, what I remember about him was his coronation ceremony, because that's the way they felt in the presence of it was that, you know, it was, um, to pay homage to him and how great he was. And so, um, that came out from various people over the years and, um, it, I don't know. It kind of speaks to the point you just made, I think. That's that's an amazing turn of phrase, coronation, of course. So, of course, uh, as with any coronation and any kingship, no one sits on the throne forever, and someone was coming for the king. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, terror takes center stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. In 1988, 1989, a grand jury is in fact convened to examine the many different allegations uh, of corruption as mismanagement and um, favoritism and so forth that are uh, characterizing his tenure. Now, there's a section in your book which I would just love for you to read for us because there's just nothing quite like hearing an act the words of an actual indictment in order to kind of put you in the moment right and uh, i was wondering if you would be so kind as to there's this passage that begins at the bottom of page 42 uh where you actually uh quote 
the grand jury report that was uh, issued in early 89 uh, with just about uh, every potential charge that he could be facing. And rather than try to summarize it, you and me, I just thought, let's let the grand jury have the last word here or have, you know, let's let them have their day. So would you, would you just start with the, you know, allegations against a paragraph there? Yeah, and and I'm glad that I'm able to read this because I certainly wouldn't be able to memorize it even though I did research the book. There's there's too much here. So <clears throat> here's what we have here. Allegations against the Cambria County President Judge were sweeping and sensational. The grand jury report, called at that time a presentment, was issued in March of 1989. It recommended charging Okiki with official oppression, criminal conspiracy to, to commit bribery, demanding property to secure employment, violations of the Pennsylvania Ethics Act, bribery, criminal coercion, theft of services, obstructing the administration of law, misapplication of property of a government institution, theft by extortion, perjury, violations of the Pennsylvania Election Code, violations of the Pennsylvania Anti-Bid Rigging Act, violations of the Pennsylvania Insurance Act, false applications for certificate of title or registration, execution of documents by deception, violations of the Pennsylvania Securities Act, felony criminal mischief, and the illegal extension of a water line. You know, that last one is just like, it is the icing on the cake, you know? <laughs> Criminal mischief and bribery and extortion and coercion. Oh, and he ran his waterline a little further than he was supposed to. <laughs> you can't make it Didn't up. Didn't want that permit. Didn't want that permit. You know, that was an extra 500 he was going to have to come up with from somewhere. So, you know, he just thought, hey... We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and do it. No, no, Bruce. I have to ask you. You know, just writer to writer here. Like, when you're working on a paragraph like that, that smelled suspiciously to me like one of those paragraphs where you write one version of it and then you're like, yeah, I got I got most of it in there, and then you go back to it and you're like, no, I gotta add this other thing, and then you go back to it again and you're like, and there's this one other detail in there, and then you you know you reach like the fifth or sixth draft and you're like. I've got to, I've got to get the waterline. The waterline has to go in, you know, and it's sort of like, there's so much that you keep revising it over and over, partly because the story itself is just too crazy to be true. Yeah. That, that felt like it went on forever because it did. And, you know, again, with the 76 total charges, um, you know, total or counts were in that presentment. And one of the anecdotes that was related to me by in fact, I believe it was the son of the person who defeated Okiki when he ran for Congress. Uh, he contacted me after this this book had come out, and he, one of the things he wanted to tell me was that he had he had seen uh, the judge shortly after the grand jury report came out, and he passes him on the street. And I'm trying to think now of the um, I'm trying to think now of the song, but there's apparently a song that is something like '76 horns or 76 trumpets or trombones or something like that but he said he hears he hears okiki whistling this tune as he walks by him on the street and he just can't help but laugh about that memory of him knowing that he's passing you know a political opponent on the street and sort of arrogantly humming 76 trombones um, because he was charged with 76 counts. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you, I didn't know about this tune. It was on The Music Man or something like that, but I had to look it up after he mentioned it to me and listen to it. And I, I tried to envision it, and I had a good laugh to myself then too, uh, picturing Judge Okiki humming this tune going down the sidewalk after he'd been charged. All politics is local every time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> that is that is fantastic. Now, in the case of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Joseph Okiki, which is just, you know, you read a title like that, you know, for a court case, and you, when you understand what the stakes are, you just sort of think this is not supposed to happen, right? I mean, this is, you know, things like this are, you know, the kind of the pinnacle of self-defeating irony, but uh, charges are filed in spring of 89, and Forgive me for being uh, so cavalier here, but, I mean, the shenanigans just don't stop. I mean, you would think that once the mechanism had kicked into gear and that, you know, uh, okay, the the state DA, you know, is on the case and they're presenting their evidence and, you know, like finally, you know, there's going to be a little bit of sanity and order restored to this just absolute... Uh, crazy town, right, of a of a court case that's been going on. Like, nope, nope, nope. We don't get any of that. It only gets wilder. It, it absolutely does. Um, he and his defense wrap, sort of wrap their strategy around the idea that Okiki was targeted here because he had made enemies with a, a powerful businessman in the area. And that essentially, this was the person that, to, to use his phrase, uh, pushed the state police button. And so that's really where the defense goes with this, um, making connections and tying many of the witnesses who testified against Okiki to various connections that they you know, may or may not have had with this businessman. And so um, it sort of took on a life of its own in, in this whole trial. And I think that was, that was very fascinating to read about and, and uh, hear from people about was this dynamic that in some cases, Okiki wasn't necessarily arguing his innocence as much as he was saying, well, this guy's worse than I am, essentially. You know, it's interesting because one very effective push was to have a certain number of just the charges themselves dropped from the get-go so that they were never actually you know, brought in. Uh, formally, you write that he'd gone from these sort of 76 charges recommended by the grand jury down to there were only about two dozen or so that he was actually really tried on by the by the end of it. But there was one moment which, and that's common enough, I mean, there's always these sort of negotiations between, you know, prosecution and defense to see what what's going to hold water, what's going to stick to the wall, etc. Um, but there was one moment which I did have to ask about, and it, it sort of spoke to the complicated relationship of one judge to another when one judge is on trial, right? And there's this kind of interesting sense of like what happens when one of our own goes bad or is accused of going bad and so forth. And one of the presiding judges over his case ended up recusing himself under some pretty shady uh, circumstances. So help us under, to understand what happened with Judge Levy. So this was another thing that I think the defense really, really aimed to use um, in their favor with the jury. Um, maybe not, maybe not overtly with the first trial, but certainly when he went to appeal. The initial presiding judge in this case, Judge Levy, at not only had he dismissed several of the charges, but apparently at one point he had made some comment while being escorted uh, to the courthouse to state police in the area that, you know, something to the effect of, well, all they need is one charge really to get rid of him or get him out of office or something like that. That 
comment that he had made to the state police was then reported back to the prosecutor's office. And the prosecutor's office, in turn, suggested that the judge, the Judge Levy, recuse himself. Now, in the first, uh, the first draft of this request, they phrase it in a way that says, well, you have too busy of a schedule back in your home county and uh, you know, you're not going to have time to devote to this properly. And when he rebuffed that, they came back and said that they had found evidence that he had used his judicial letterhead on personal correspondences with individuals. And essentially it was almost, it was almost a sort of, I don't know how to say this innocent threat toward the judge, essentially, you know, we have evidence that you have done something possibly wrong yourself now. And so if you don't recuse yourself, we might have to take this into consideration. And so he did ultimately recuse himself and a second judge, Judge Griffo, then presided over the, the second half of this, this proceeding. And so that was something that Okiki and his lawyers made a big deal about, um, again, in the ramp up to try to get a second trial was that, uh, you know, the, the prosecutor's office had engaged in misconduct, essentially, in, in trying to get the judge they wanted to hear. And so that was something that, uh, again, that they made a big deal about. As you mentioned, however, in fairness, these things happen all the time just because you have certain charges dismissed or consolidated. It's not necessarily evidence that they were all going away. But that was a big deal that, that Okiki and his team made in all of this. You know, when I read it in your book, Bruce, I have to, I have to confess, um, it absolutely came across as a veiled threat. I mean, there was no other way to read it, right? Uh, you know, just based on kind of their their tone and kind of like the timing of it, and you know, the the game they were trying to play, the strategy that was at, at, uh, under under development. You know, at that point in the proceedings, it was just sort of like this is exactly what they want, and they're not afraid to to you know show their peace, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to tiptoe around it. I tried to be careful with some of these things, but I think that's a fair statement on your end. Uh, th and that was, again, that was something that the defense made a big deal about. In fact, uh, do you know the show Inside Edition? Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, sure. So that was actually the focus of an entire segment of Inside Edition that, that Okiki and his team had basically contacted them and had them come to Johnstown. And they focused almost extensively on that aspect of the trial. They did an entire... I think it was Bill O'Reilly was was the guy back in the studio saying, "Hey, we're going to go, you know, go live to Johnstown, PA," and that's where um, Okiki and his attorneys made a big deal about that particular aspect of the trial after he was convicted. Um, of course, the irony here is that Okiki had done the exact same thing himself, used official stationery for all sorts of personal requests, sometimes yes. involving money. <laughs> yes. Did, did no one think that the pot was calling the kettle black? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, uh, so much to get into with this. And that was that was sort of the challenge of this, as you mentioned, when you're talking about so many different aspects to it, not just the charges against him. Um, there was just a lot going on at the time, and you had to be careful which rabbit holes you went down or how much time you focused on any one thing. Because in, in honesty, certain chapters probably could have br been branched out into their own book themselves but you have to you have to focus at one point and move on but you're right about that well we are going to leave our listeners on a cliffhanger here um i want to ask you how the end of the trial played out 
and there's a passage that I'd love for you to read for us as well. But it is fascinating that at this moment of such heightened drama and attention paid to the integrity of the judicial system, even more ironies, sort of even more shenanigans are are lying in wait. You know, it was, we've just finished looking at the Alex Murdoch trial with several guests, and it came up in the course of our conversation that, of course, courtrooms are theaters. But in this particular case, Bruce, I think a better description might be a circus. <laughs> and I think you were covering kind of a circus in retrospect. And, you know, here out comes the lion tamer and here come the trapeze artists. And, you know, look at these legal, you know, acrobatics that are taking place in, in every corner of the arena. I just, I couldn't kind of get it out of my, my head that this was just getting wilder and wilder by the minute. But the end of the trial, of course, is the wildest of all and what happens immediately after. So take us take us there. So when Okiki's convicted, of course, he's looking at appealing. And so not only is he planning that, he's also planning a backup strategy. And that backup strategy, in fact, involves fleeing the country entirely. And so his wife, his second wife, had been studying on a Fulbright scholarship in Slovenia, which was sort of a fledgling nation at the time, with ironically no extradition treaty with the United States. And Okiki's parents had lived in that area. And so he had essentially found a way to obtain a passport, a Slovenian passport, as a dual citizen amid all this. So state police had taken his American passport and thought he was grounded here. Well, when he finds out that the state is not going to hear his appeal he disappears. And that's where he pops up in Slovenia, ironically, where no extradition treaty has been reached with the United States. And so after all of that, he doesn't end up serving a day of his, his uh, sentence. Would you read that passage for us on page 83 that starts off with, he's convicted of six counts of all the, of the um, charges that are brought against him. And would you just read that passage that starts off with the memorable phrase. I'm going to try not to get tongue twisted here because there it is kind of a Peter Piper pickle peppers, you know, kind of kind of sentence but where you say and so Okiki was cooked. And so Okiki was cooked. The man sworn in as the county's president judge less than 2 years prior was now a convict. He would be stripped of his $80,000 salary and pension. His sentence would include a maximum of 26 years. Ironically, Okiki would never serve even a day in jail. Instead, Attorney General Ernest Priate, whose office prosecuted the judge, would himself end up in federal prison. So we are not going to spoil for our listeners why that happens, right? We're, for that, you got to read the book. Um, it, it's, there's plenty more where that came from as far as the circus uh, goes. But, you know, when he gets to Slovenia, it's kind of remarkable. He really does do this quasi-espionage kind of thing where it's like rotating addresses and he goes in disguise and, you know, he does everything he can to avoid um, capture. Uh, again, our listeners are going to have to read the book to find out exactly what happens to him over there. But I have just one or two questions for you uh, regarding the overall sweep of the case, uh, Bruce. Uh, Someone far wiser than I am once told me that everybody has a price. And the question is finding out exactly what that price is. So what I'd like to ask you is 
What do you think was Okiki's price? Or did he enjoy his position of being able to find out everybody else's price? What was the what was the core of his corruption, would you say? That's deep. That is a deep question, Ben. I would say in Okiki's case, going back to, as we mentioned briefly, his upbringing and maybe his childhood, and you, and you talk about the chip he had on his shoulder, to a certain extent, I think, and it felt to me like throughout here that um, he was he was looking to climb. He was looking to get as high on the ladder as he could go. And I think that, you know, the congressional run speaks to that, his grand ambitions and calling in the state Supreme Court, you know, the talk about joining the federal bench. And so I think he was, I think he was driven to get where he wanted to be. And the costs along the way maybe were secondary in, in, to a certain degree. Um, and I think as part of telling this story, and I think which was equally fascinating to me was just all of the other components and things that were happening at the time. In addition to his trial, you know, we just briefly mentioned the attorney general himself facing some trouble as well. And so that was just as compelling to me to research as Okiki's case itself was everything going on in Cambria County and to some extent throughout Pennsylvania also at the time. Um, when you peel back and, and zoom out a little bit and, and look at the big picture, it's 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 sort of mind blowing. I mean, the youthful ambition, as you write very early on, seems to be an incredible driving force. But I wonder, you know, what happens when you actually get to that position of power, and it's all it takes is one one little influence, one little misstep. And it makes the next one easier and the next one easier after that. And then soon, you know, you're, you're kind of um, taking a little kickback here, a little consideration there. And part of it, part of it is simply to maintain what you have, right? But then there's another part of it where you're always trying to extend your reach. And the whole thing, you know, it can't last, of course, but with such a long career um, uh, of of abusing the public trust, you know, I was just wondering over and over as I was reading your book, you know, what was his price? What was his price? And I, I never really quite got an answer there. It's mysterious. Again, I, I think that it's just, to a certain extent, I feel like there was a belief that once you get to a certain position, there's an entitlement almost. Um, and I think that it was something maybe he sensed around him, maybe preceding him, before him. And one of the things that was recently written by another author, uh, a man named Russell Shorto, did a book called Small Time, and it focused on his own family's involvement with um, illicit mob activity dating back to the mid-century. And one of the things that he gets into in that book is a very straightforward payoff system that had been arranged in Cambria County where when these mob outfits were operating and the, the illegal gambling was going on, they had a system set up where the mob was feeding funds to whatever political party was in power. And as part of that system and arrangement, when they would do a bust, they almost set it up in coercion with them where, okay, this is the guy that's going to take the fall here. They're going to get a slap on the wrist fine, and we're going to continue doing business. And so 
I only bring that up because I do feel like if you do, if you look at the history, there was a lot of that going on for a long time. A lot of these payoffs, a lot of these arrangements made for years where people weren't getting in, into hot water. And so I think that to a certain extent, he felt because of knowing some of this, that he too would be immune to any any consequences. Well, for our listeners who want to dive deep into the heart of and the mind of uh, a man whose abuse of trust lives on in infamy and has for decades and decades and decades. I mean, this account cannot arrive on their desks soon enough. Uh, it really is incredibly well-researched. And as you go through, you just each new page presents um, <laughs> more, more of the circus, but also more of the sadness too, you know, at how someone could fall so far um, from grace. And we're very grateful to you for, for shining a light on a part of the story that even though it's broken, it shows us, you know, how much more work there is to do. And it reminds us of how grateful we can be when the system does work as intended. And your chapter about the fact that there was a post-Okiki era injustice in Cambria County was such a tonic, such a needed tonic, you know, after the uh, after your account of the misdeeds. So I was very grateful that you included that as part of your story. Yeah, it's it's not all it's not all darkness here. And um, yeah, absolutely, I think that uh, it's important to note that we have not had a sitting judge uh, here in the county convicted since, and so we'll hope that that streak continues. <laughs> Well, we will we will raise our glass uh, to that. Tell us uh, just before we go, where can listeners find a copy of your book, and uh, how can they order it or pre-order it? What's the best place for them to find you and Jailing the Johnstown Judge? Arcadia Publishing um, is is one place to look for it. Um, that's A R C A D I A Publishing, and also of course on online retailers such as. Um, Amazon and, and books a million, et cetera. But um, I did want to first mention Arcadia, um, of course, parent company with History Press, and and thank them as the ones who had seen seen the potential in a story like this, and um, you know worked with me on on publishing it. Well, Bruce, it has been a total pleasure uh, to have you. Thank you again, and all the best for the release of the book. Thanks, Ben. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been Bruce Seavey author of Jailing the Johnstown Judge, Joe Okiki, The Mob, and Corrupt Justice, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. And join us next week as we go from the bad judges to the good, as we interview retired Texas magistrate judge John Promomo about his book on a murder case on the Rio Grande. Thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? 
Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.